0: Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. Great to have you with us tonight. Uh, we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 9. 13:9, And the verse reads, The light of the righteous makes them happy, and the candle of the wicked flickers out. The light of the righteous makes them happy, and the candle of the wicked flickers out. And so our first step is to ask ourselves what questions come to mind as we read that verse. Not answers yet, but what kinds of questions jump out that we would want to understand in order to be able to figure out what King Solomon is trying to teach us in this verse. The light of the righteous makes them happy, and the candle of the wicked flickers out. Okay, so uh, thank you, Naomi. How will the light make the righteous happy uh, or make them rejoice? And how does the lamp or the candle of the wicked flicker out? And I would add to that, we'd probably want to define what is the light of the righteous? And as you indicated, how does it make them happy or why does it make them happy? What is the candle of the wicked? What is that referring to and why does it flicker out? And you'll notice interestingly that King Solomon uses uh, a different reference in the first half versus the second half. He's talking about the light in the first half but the candle in the second half. And I think we'll find that that turns out to be very significant. The Rabbeinu Yonah uh, yes, Naomi, you're right. The righteous is compared with the light and the other is compared with a lamp. And, and the Rabbeinu Yona says that the light is separate while the candle means that it's dependent on the wax. So, <clears throat> Rabbi Moskowitz shared with us when the wicked relate to the physical world Their security is based on the physical world. That's how they relate to it. Their whole life is caught up in the physical world. The light of the righteous means that they recognize that their only dependency is on their minds. Yes, the righteous person needs the physical, has to survive in the physical world, but he's not dependent on it. He's dependent on the world of ideas while the wicked are dependent on the wax of the candle not the light of represented by the world of true ideas so a righteous person is happy because they're involved in the world of ideas, the world of the true good by contrast the wicked are focused on the physical and that eventually flickers out for them as, as a person gets older the physical pleasures dim and eventually they cease altogether and eventually the person dies so in this case we're looking at a contrast between the focus of the righteous which is on the world of ideas and that that light, that truth makes them happy while the candle of the wicked, which is physical, the candle's physical, and then eventually when you burn it, it burns down and it's gone. The candle of the wicked, which represents their uh, attachment to the physical world, eventually flickers out. Okay? Any questions on this verse? Very interesting juxtaposition that. King Solomon makes there to get that idea across between the light and the candle. Okay. Any questions? In that case, we'll move on. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. And the verse reads only impetuousness causes quarrels and advisors cause wisdom only impetuousness causes quarrels and advisors cause wisdom so what kind of questions might we ask around that? so first of all we'd want to define what impetuousness is and what causes a person to have that particular character trait. And then, why does impetuousness cause quarrels? I mean, how does that work? And why is it, interestingly, that the verse says only impetuousness causes quarrels? And then on the second half we'd want to talk about how advisors actually cause wisdom. I mean, does that really work? And then when we look at the two halves, the first and the second half, it's an interesting juxtaposition because the first half is talking about a quality, which is impetuousness, which causes a physical result, which is quarrels. But the second half is talking about advisors who are physical people, not, that's not a quality, and that they cause wisdom, which is more along the lines of a quality, not a physical result so how is the first half relating to the second half? so I will suggest to you that impetuousness is when you act without thinking through the consequences it's it's when you act based solely on your emotions with no thought to the impact that your actions may have so sometimes we talk about the term an impetuous child you know a child that just goes and does something without thinking it through very carefully. He acts out his emotions without thinking about the consequences of those emotions. So what causes a person to be impetuous? I'll suggest two causes. First of all, he lacks an understanding of how to think through consequences. He hasn't been trained to do that. So that kind of thinking isn't even on his mental radar screen. He's just maybe used to blurting out whatever is on his mind or his current emotional state or if he's angry, he just you know, verbalizes it to whoever happens to be around. The second possibility or cause is that he has such strong emotions that they overcome him. In other words, he hasn't learned how to control his emotions, so he allows them to just take over his life. Now, why does impetuousness cause quarrels? Well, what happens when somebody is impetuous? They act on their emotions without thinking. And when you're dealing with other people, it's very easy to offend other people when you do that. So the person triggers some emotional reaction in the other person that causes them to react. So for example, let's suppose a wife spends a lot of time preparing a nice dinner for her husband. And the husband comes home, he sits down to eat, and he finds that the soup is too salty for his taste. So rather than think about the consequences of saying something about that, he just impetuously blurts out, Can't you make soup that isn't so salty? So now what happens to the wife? Let's think about her. She has slaved away in the kitchen, For hours to make her husband this nice dinner. And as a result, she feels immediately offended. And she fires back, I worked for hours to make you this dinner. The least you could do is to show some appreciation. And then the impetuous husband fires back, Well, it wasn't exactly a picnic at the office today either. And back and forth they go, finding themselves in this big quarrel. So the impetuousness becomes the cause because somebody blurts out something that somebody else reacts to and then they react to that and there's this back and forth thing that goes on and on and on. Now, the verse, interestingly, as we pointed out, says only impetuousness causes quarrels. Why is that? Because I'll suggest that a quarrel or strife is caused by two people who each want to win in a situation rather than sitting down and rationally and calmly discussing their differences and their needs. It's the leaping ahead, the impetuousness, the leaping ahead without thinking or the acting without thinking about the effect on the other person that's what causes the strife. If a person thought through all the consequences of their actions and the impact of what they were going to do or say on another person before they said it or did it, then they ought to be able to anticipate how the other person might react and structure their approach in such a way as to avoid strife or quarreling. We see this sometimes in business situations that end up getting reported on the news where, you know, somebody writes an email to somebody and person A writes to person B, and person B takes something the wrong way and fires back a defensive email to person A. Person A maybe fires another one back to person B, just like in the example of the dinner thing that we talked about. And then one of those people eventually takes that whole chain of emails and forwards them to somebody else, who forwards them to somebody else, and it gets all the way out into the, to the open world on the internet, and pretty soon somebody looks really you know, silly or stupid or worse or maybe even loses their job. Now, if they had really sat down and thought about the impact of their words when they fired off that first email, they would have stopped and said, hmm, yeah, I'm angry and I really want to get back at that guy, but if I do that, what is going to be the likely outcome? He's probably going to be mad and then he's going to do something in response to that and I will look bad if that email gets copied to anybody else da, da, da. so instead of doing that I will go out and you know hit my hand against the ground or, or uh, you know punch a ball or, or stomp my feet or do something to get my emotion out some way and then when I'm calmer I'll go back and respond uh, to that email so with a little bit of practice it's not difficult to try to think through what the response of another person might be I mean all you really need to do is think about well if I were him and I got this email how would I respond? Uh, so what but what happens is it's that acting without thinking that impetuousness that gets us into trouble so an important aspect of this is that you have to learn how other people think And importantly, you have to recognize that other people do not necessarily think the same way that you do. Um, Based on uh, uh, studies with the rabbis years ago, I, I coined the phrase, the most dangerous assumptions are the ones that we don't realize we're making. We go to talk to somebody, and we assume, or can assume, without thinking about it or really testing it, that they want the same thing that we do. You know, well, I want to have a, a, a good business negotiation with you, obviously you want the same, right? Well, maybe, but maybe the other person basically just wants to you know, get the best deal at your expense and doesn't care about an ongoing relationship. Um, if someone uh, wants to kill another person and is willing to give up his own life to do that, it's probably unlikely that trying to negotiate with him or her is going to solve the problem. You know, you want peace, they want you dead. That's a different mindset. Your mindset is different from theirs, and it's important to understand the different mindsets of people that we're dealing with so that we can approach them with a strategy that will work. And as we've seen, the study of Mishlei of Proverbs, includes looking at different types of people and understanding what's driving them and how they may be thinking about the world and other people. So when the first half of the verse says only impetuousness uh, causes quarrels, you can go back probably and look at any quarrel and see that somewhere in the causative factors of that was someone that was acting without thinking because they could have seen if they would thought through the implications seen okay what is likely going to happen here how is this potentially going to turn out if I say that or do that and then have taken a different turn to avoid that problem okay are we clear so far? okay I will take no response as a yes So let's move on to the second half. It says that advisors cause wisdom. So how does that work? Well, an advisor, if they truly are an advisor, will help a person think through a situation and see potential consequences. I mean, that's probably one of the main reasons that people have advisors in in the first place, is to get an opinion from them of, what do you think I ought to do in this situation? and a good advisor will say, well, if you do this, this might happen, if you do that, that might happen, if you do that, that might happen, and all those consequences are bad ones except, you know, the first scenario we described, so that would probably be the best approach. They'll help you think through and see the potential consequences of a situation. That can cause you, as the person being advised, um, to act with wisdom. In other words, the person hearing the advice will be able to see a bigger picture and take appropriate action to avoid consequences and particularly avoid quarrels. So, how does the first half relate to the second half? I can see two possible ways to relate these. The first centers around the word cause. In the first half, the person who operates on the basis of his emotions without thinking causes quarrels that's the result of that common approach he causes that to happen while an advisor that's one who's operating on the basis of his thinking and not his emotions causes wisdom so in this approach the verse is contrasting the result that you get based on the approach that you take with your thinking, or the lack of it. In one case, you get a result of quarrels, in other case, you get a result of wisdom. A second way to look at the contrast of the first and the second half is that the verse is contrasting interpersonal relations. Quarrels are caused by impetuousness, whereas wisdom will result in a lack of quarrels. So, the lack of quarrels happens because quarrels are only caused by impetuousness and wisdom can prevent that from happening. Okay, let me pause here and see if we have any questions. Okay, so we're moving on to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11. And the verse reads, Wealth gained by nothingness will diminish, while one who gathers by hand will increase wealth gained by nothingness will diminish while one who gathers by hand will increase so, what are the questions? what questions could we ask around that verse before we start to try to give answers or analyze it what do we want to know or need to know in order to understand what this verse is trying to tell us wealth gained by nothingness will diminish while one who gathers by hand will increase what do you think, any ideas about questions? Okay, so Naomi Good, you suggested, how can vanity earn? So when it says wealth gained by nothingness, seems kind of weird, because how would you gain any wealth out of nothingness? And how does someone increase who gathers by hand? How does that work? Very good. So we're going to have to define wealth gained by nothingness and, and why it diminishes and what it means to gather by hand, and why someone who gathers by hand will increase. So again, uh, relying on uh, my notes from Rabbi Moskowitz, by nothingness, it means something that you gained as a result of you acting on your emotions in a way that has nothing to do with reality. Again, let me repeat that. It it means a gain that you get as a result of acting on your emotions in a way that has nothing to do with reality. For example, um, stealing something from someone else. So stealing comes about because you want something, but it's not yours. So you're not following reality and figuring out, okay, how how can I save enough money to go buy one of those or whatever. You you want to shortcut reality. You're trying to sidestep it. So, the, the verse is talking about wealth gained through that kind of a means. And that suggests then the next question of why will wealth gained that way diminish? Well, we've talked before that someone who's operating that way, that is, they're not operating in reality. They're operating in accordance with a, a fantasy of trying to bend reality in a way that suits them a person like that is going to end up making mistakes virtually by definition because they're not operating in reality somewhere sometime they're going to make a mistake and interestingly the more success that they have the more cocky they get or the more uh, kind of arrogant and uh, sure of themselves they get And that then will, I think, increase the likelihood they'll make a mistake, potentially a big one that could even be fatal, because they get so sure of themselves and that pushes them farther and farther away from reality. Once you take that first step and you get success at it, well, that leads you to think, wow, if I can do that, I could do this. And that takes you farther from reality and then the next step and the next step and pretty soon you're a long ways away from it. So over time, their wealth will diminish as a result of their mistakes. Now, uh, a person who gathers by hand, in contrast to the person in the first half, that person is operating in reality. He's not trying to cut corners, he's not trying to take shortcuts that, that aren't a part of reality. He is doing what he can, gathers by hand, does things in a measured and step by step way. He is trying to provide for himself and uh, perhaps uh, accumulate some wealth, but he's not trying to skip any steps. The guy in the first half is trying to skip steps. I'll just take it the shortcut method. Steal it, scheme for it, swindle somebody out of it, whatever. guy in the second half, he's He's doing it in a realistic way, and because of that attachment to realism and not skipping steps, over time he will increase. Okay, questions so far? So, uh, Terry and Laura, you said the wealth gained without working doesn't mean anything. Uh, Right, the the translation that I was working from is wealth gained by nothingness, Uh, but it could also be wealth gained uh, without working, because um, wealth gained without working would have to either come through some uh, big fortuitous event that you didn't anticipate, or through something... Um, illegal, uh, or you know, by stealing it or taking it from someone. Now, interestingly, in that context, um, if you if you translate it, wealth gained without working, that could include somebody winning uh, a lottery. But what we see, if when we look at these kinds of things, is people who suddenly fall into huge sums of money are generally not mentally prepared for dealing with them. And so, I don't know what the statistics are, but I think it's reasonably often, they end up losing it because they're not prepared for it. You know, as someone once said, uh, well, that, that we have this illusion that money will solve all our problems. But we see lots of people in society who have lots of money and they still have lots of problems. Uh, but people will think, oh if I could just win the lottery and get millions and millions of dollars or uh, whatever, all my problems would be solved. But without the training and the understanding of what to do with that money, a person can end up um, uh, you know, making huge mistakes with it. Uh, There's, it's an interesting point that has been made that um, what wealth really allows you to do is is just more of kind of who you are so if um, you if a person is not very wise and they have a little bit of money then they're in a position that they can lose the little bit of money that they have if a person has a huge amount of money and isn't very wise they can lose a huge amount of money it sort of magnifies your errors uh, depending on uh, on what you're doing. So, Terry and Laura, I hope that, that explains that. Um, uh, Naomi, you've asked the question, will, will any wealth that is ill-gotten, either through mistake or uh, without knowledge, will also diminish? I would say generally yes, because if you don't have the knowledge of how to deal with it, even even if it came to you legitimately, um, if you don't have the knowledge of how to deal with it then you run the risk of making huge mistakes or having it swindled from you or or something. And if you got it by ill-gotten means you're already down that road because you're not dealing in reality anyway. Uh, you're you're, you're in, in the world of fantasy. Um, and yes, Terry and Laurie, the the uh, large sums of money Generally, work against, uh, that are suddenly given to a person, uh, seem to, from what I have read, generally work against them, not for them. Uh, a person has to have a certain amount of wisdom to be able to handle that, not just to run out and start living a lavish lifestyle, but to know what they need to do with it, how to do with it, how to protect themselves, uh, and so forth. And yes, Naomi, it can be like inheritance inheritances uh, that children get from parents. Um, in in this case, well, it depends too on on uh, the child. But if the child has not been taught how to deal with wealth, then you can run into the same problem, even if the money's legitimate. You know, if a kid sat around and just never learned anything and was just lazy, his whole upbringing because his parents were wealthy and he could afford to do that when his parents die he will not have much of a clue about how to manage the money uh... whereas somebody that studiously applied themselves and learned what they needed to learn and you know grew up uh, through the ranks and maybe worked in uh... the parents business and so forth and understood how it all worked okay now if the parents leave him a fair amount of money he may be in a position to know what steps to take to uh, uh, to cover himself so. now there is another possible interpretation of this verse uh, which Rabbi Moskowitz gave over which is uh, to read it slightly differently wealth from a bundle diminishes and he who gathers little by little it multiplies and what he wanted to suggest was that what the verse meant by a bundle it said, wealth from a bundle diminishes is that you're trying to make uh... i guess what we refer to in the united states as the big kill Um, you know the big deal i'm gonna close this one and get you know a huge amount of money and be on easy street for the rest of my life the problem is that in that scenario the person doesn't necessarily place appropriate value on the money the person just thinks oh if i get this big deal or this big kill then everything will be great but it isn't Uh, because the person doesn't value the money they don't deal with it properly and again, as we mentioned, if a person makes bad decisions in life, all that a bundle of money allows them to do is make bad decisions on a bigger scale by contrast if we say wealth from a bundle diminishes and he who gathers little by little it multiplies the person who gathers little by little operates more carefully his knowledge grows as his wealth grows So he is taking it step by step by step. And maybe he first starts out knowing how to deal with a dollar, and then two dollars, and then five dollars, and then twenty dollars, and then two hundred dollars, and on and on and on. So his knowledge is increasing as his wealth is growing. And so he increases. Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that stingy and frugal are two different things. Stingy means that I, I just can't spend it. You know I, I, I got this money, but I just can't spend it. There's some emotional blockage, probably, or something that is preventing the person from actually spending the money. Um, but frugal means that I would investigate spending a penny like I would investigate spending $50. In other words, I'm careful with whatever I have. And if I'm not, then my wealth is going to diminish. So, he is suggesting a person should be frugal, that is very prudent about the way they spend and invest their money, but not stingy. Not so like, I can't spend it no matter what. So, this process, uh, this this he who gathers little uh, and multiplies, um, and, and going step by step, this applies to a lot of things, like Torah study, and physical health, and the quality of your relationships, you you have to keep going one little bit at a time you have to deal with small things every day and gathering little by little over time can produce huge results i mean that's how these classes work uh, i mean hopefully you know somewhere along the way you'll get a big aha uh, during a particular lesson but the real change comes from going over and over the ideas, not by trying to force yourself to act in a certain way because, okay, Proverbs says I should act this way so now I'm going to muscle myself into it. No, it's about going over and over the ideas uh, and, and eventually those ideas become part of you and then you just naturally act in that fashion. You don't have to force it. So, the clarity of understanding here Uh, the clarity of understanding every step is more important than the whole picture. Uh, When you listen to recordings of uh, rabbis like Rabbi Chait and and Rabbi Moskowitz, and and, uh, these very learned scholars, listen to the whole idea and then go back and go through it step by step. Every step is important. There is no rush here. You can't be in a rush. It's not important whether you finish. You don't have to finish. The quality is more important than the quantity. The only reason you need the quantity is to help you with the quality. You want to take it very carefully and understand every step because that's what makes it clear to your mind and that's what eventually causes the real behavior change. Okay, any questions on this verse or this process? Greetings, Ray. Great to have you uh, you with us today. and yes Terry and Laurie it is about being responsible okay any questions on that verse okay so let's move on to Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 chapter 13 verse 12 and the verse reads a drawn-out hope sickens the heart but desire attained is a tree of life. A drawn-out hope sickens the heart, but desire attained is a tree of life. And as we always do in these verses, the first step we want to take is to ask ourselves, what are the questions? Not the answers yet, but the questions. What kinds of questions come to mind when we look at that verse or read it That we would need to know the answers to in order to fully grasp what King Solomon's trying to teach us. A drawn-out hope sickens the heart, but desire attained is a tree of life. So let me just repeat these for the recording. What's a drawn-out hope? Why does it sicken the heart? and what's a desire in the context of this verse and why is it considered to be a tree of life and for that matter what's a tree of life in this context so interestingly according to the Ibn Ezra this verse is a continuation of the previous verse and Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that a drawn out hope um, I believe this was from him means that your hope is not satisfied It's where it's not going to happen. Something that you had hoped for is not going to occur. Now, why would that sicken the heart? Well, let's think about that. If you want something, but you're not going to get it, then you're in conflict with reality. That conflict is going to create a certain level of discomfort within you. In essence, you're not accepting reality. You know, I want this and it's not going to happen. And it's that conflict right there where I want something that isn't happening in reality that is going to create a certain level of discomfort. I will suggest to you that a failure to accept reality is the source of virtually all of our emotional pain. It's our resistance to reality that creates emotional pain within us. So, a drawn out hope, a hope that's not going to be satisfied, sickens the heart, creates discomfort within me. Now, when we look at the second half of the verse, in, the, in, in this context, when we talk about desire, it can't be talking about a fantasy. because. It, the verse says a desire attained is a tree of life and we've talked in these classes extensively about how fantasies lead, uh, are, are not in line with reality and lead you down the wrong path. So that interpretation won't work uh, because fantasies are by definition not reality and they have to create conflicts. But if the desire in the the context of this verse and what King Solomon was getting at is something you achieve that is healthy for you then it's a tree of life then it's something that will bring life to you so in this case the desire that's spoken of in the second half is something that's healthy for you and achieving that is a tree of life for you or something that will will bring health to you so the verse in total seems to be talking about things that people desire and hope for. And if you desire and hope for things that are not in line with reality, that creates pain. If you desire things that are in line with reality and are positive for you, that creates life for you. And Rashi points out that Uh, in his interpretation that the first half of the verse refers to a person who promises to help a friend but then doesn't do so. And the Meiri says that a person should try to fulfill his promises to other people right away. So from this we can also learn that when we promise something we should do it as fast as possible because people wait for it and we don't want to cause them sickness of heart so for example if you you know promised your neighbor that you know you would come over and help him uh, dig holes for his fence but you know a few days goes by a couple weeks goes by a month or two goes by and you know your neighbor wanting to get his fence done and you said you'd get over there but you just don't get to it because you're busy with other things you're starting to create some sickness of heart for him Or if it's something he really needs, like, you know, you'll loan him money uh, that he desperately needs, but you just don't get around to it. Um, If you've promised to help somebody, then you should do it and fulfill that promise right away so that we don't end up being the cause of the sickness of heart uh, for another person. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, let's move on to chapter 13, verse 13. And the verse reads, He who scorns something will himself be harmed, but he who reveres a commandment will be rewarded. He who scorns something will himself be harmed, but he who reveres a commandment will be rewarded. Any thoughts about questions around this verse? So here are some possibilities. What's the something that is being scorned? It says, he who scorns something will himself be harmed. That seems kind of odd and open-ended for King Solomon to say. And why will someone who scorns something be harmed? I mean, if it were an evil situation, wouldn't we want to scorn that? And what does it mean to revere a commandment, and why will a person who reveres a commandment be rewarded? Okay, good, Naomi. How will uh, how will the scorn lead to injury? And, yes, you've made a good point. Uh, the reverence of which commandment? Uh, will he be rewarded. So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say like this. What's the subject of the whole book we're studying? It's Proverbs. It's about rebuke. Or said in another way, it's about musr. It's about education on how to deal with life. And Rabbi Moskowitz's definition of Musser is the science of the consequences of your actions. So if you scorn instruction with regard to the consequences of your actions, then you will pay the consequences and you will be harmed. If somebody's trying to help you to understand what the consequences of your actions are and you just blow them off and say, eh, I don't want to listen to you, get out of my face then you're likely to be harmed because you will not see the consequences of your actions, you won't see the wisdom that that person is bringing to you, and you will make mistakes. So the person who scorns Musser is going to get harmed, one way or another, through the consequences of their own actions. Now, with regard to commandments, one way to look at a commandment is it's like someone giving you advice. Someone says, do this, or don't do that. And if you take it just as advice, then you don't have to be afraid of it, you just decide whether it's right or wrong. You know, is this a good idea or not a good idea? So, he suggested that we could think of the world of Musser as having three levels. In the first level, you scorn the Musser. The, 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 uh, the education about the science of the consequences of your actions. And uh, if, if you were to scorn it, then the person who scorns it is going to ignore it. In the second level, you see Musser as advice. Okay, if I can do it, I do it. But if I have some strong emotion that's preventing me from doing it, then maybe I won't do it. Okay. I'm just making the decision uh, in each situation whether I'm going to take it or leave it. The third level, he points out, is when Musser becomes a part of you. When the science of the consequences of your actions becomes a part of you and the way you operate. And when that happens, then you have to act on it because you see the truth of the ideas. Not because you're muscling yourself into it, but because the ideas are so real to you that you automatically act on them, so it becomes like a commandment to you, where you have to take it, even if somebody gave it to you scornfully, even if if somebody came up and and told you some negative consequences about the way you were going to act, and they did it in a mean way, you would still look at it and see the true the idea behind it and say hmm. Yeah, might not like his delivery, but his message is right. And so the truth of the ideas is where you focus, and it's so real that it doesn't really matter how the person gave it to you. You have to act on it. And that's when it becomes like you revere it like a commandment. And so that person will be rewarded because they're acting on the basis of the world of ideas and true consequences. They're looking ahead, they're analyzing situations and ideas, and it's so real to them that it's it's a part of how they act. Not just, well, I'll do it if I feel like it or not if I don't. Okay, does this make sense? It's like a a commandment that you, you know is true, you have to follow it. Not because you're afraid of an authority figure, but because the truth of it is so real to you, you can't not. Following. And Rabbi Moskowitz made an interesting um, uh, point which I think is closely related. You're an independent person. God only intervenes in the physical world. Okay, You can't ask him for help in overcoming temptation except the extent of asking him to arrange the situation so that you'll be successful in overcoming the temptation. He quoted the, the, uh, I think it's from the Talmud, everything is in the hands of heaven uh, except the fear of heaven. In other words, everything's in God's hands except the fear of heaven, and that's the part that we're responsible for. So we have to take responsibility for that part. We can pray about the physical world and things that happen, but the part with regard to us, we have to take responsibility for. Okay, any questions on this? And Naomi, I actually would say that is different than conscience. Conscience is a little uh, bell that rings in my mind um, that, you know, I'm off track. But I have to look at the world of ideas and analyze the situation to see uh, whether the, the... the prick that I'm getting in my conscience is uh, in line with reality. The old adage, let your conscience be your guide, is a line from a Walt Disney movie called Pinocchio. Uh, So it's really, you should let your rational mind be your guide uh, in these circumstances. Okay. Any questions or comments? Okay, in that case, I appreciate all of you attending, and we will stop for the evening.